I agonize over things that didn't work out as planned. That's why they're good, is because they're full of shit. It does not and has not wet the bed, at least. We did have the traveling secretary take out the mini bar. Welcome to episode five of Digging In with JPR and Sevia. I'm your host, Nick Ashbourne, and today we're joined by Alex Anthopoulos, one of the most popular executives in the history of Toronto sports, I think it's fair to say, and a guy that uh, I think a, a few people kind of uh, would like to have him back if they could. Yeah, I mean, is that pretty safe to say that he's one of the, the most famous and well-liked people in, in Toronto? Oh, yeah, because, you know, he's a Canadian guy for one, and then for two, he ended that massive playoff drought and whatnot and had trades like the Donaldson trade that really worked out. I think, you know, he's not perfect. Not every deal worked out, but I think in terms of in this town, like, yeah, he's definitely there. Over the GM of the Argonauts? That was, <laughs> that was, my, that was my joke. But, no, he's, he's a great, he's a great uh, GM, obviously very well-respected, and somebody who gave me my chance to, to play in the major leagues because when I got called up, he was the GM, and he was the GM for most of my career in Toronto. And so I'm always very thankful to him, and uh, it'll be fun to be able to pick his brain. I love talking to GMs and anybody to do with uh, decision-making in the big leagues because it's changed so much from analytical and all these different things. So as players, we're always kind of questioning, what the heck are you guys doing? Well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Because in the clubhouse, we all play – Mr. GM, and a lot of times we're confused because we're not number guys. We're guys that are on the field. So it's always fun to, to be able to talk to uh, GMs. Yeah, there's 25 GMs in every clubhouse, that's for sure. No, no, much more than that, much more. There's Because as you go that and then you go to the minor leagues and you add to the GMs in the minor leagues, everybody has some kind of uh, let's play GM game. Yeah, and then, I mean, you've got everyone in the media and you've got every – you know, there are, basically there are thousands of them out there and uh, only only 30 of them get jobs. But before we give you our dose of AA that we know you guys are craving, we're going to talk a little bit current Blue Jays. And right now, sort of actually as we're recording this podcast, Russell Martin is going to be making his first career start in left field. He started for at shortstop for the first time. And this is a really interesting storyline where – as, as a former catcher, I think it's interesting to hear what you think of a guy who's able to come out from behind the plate and suddenly, you know, at his age too, at the age of 35, play a bunch of pretty demanding positions. Well, for one thing, there's not many catchers that can do it. Um, Russell Martin is one of them. It, it all has to do with the athletic ability, correct? You know, like for me, not anywhere near as good of an athlete as Russell Martin is. And that's a huge thing. So I can go out there and play shortstop. I can go out there and play left field. I'll catch the balls that are hit to me in my vicinity, but I'm not going to go and, and make a lot of plays. I'm not going to have the same range that a normal shortstop would have or a normal left fielder would have. Um, but you look at Russell Martin, one thing that separates his athleticism is his speed, right? And so the catchers that you see come from behind the plate and being able to play any kind of position other than catcher. I mean, in first base, I played first base. You really don't need much speed for that. You have to be able to move. You have to be able to, to laterally move. You have to be able to run. And so you, you, you think of Russell Martin, you think of him as one of the better running catchers in the league, and it's one of the more athletic catchers. So, yeah, he can do it, and he, he, he obviously has been able to make some pretty good plays 
the thing that worries me is now you're having to use Russell Martin in all these different positions. That kind of gives you a little bit of the state of the roster. Yeah, exactly. So there's two sides to the story. There's this like, wow, this is fun. Look at what this guy can do side of the story. And that's sort of the uplifting part in the middle of a pretty dire stretch for the Blue Jays. But then there's the other part where, you know, most teams don't have to throw a 35-year-old catcher out there at shortstop. Like most teams aren't contemplating throwing a guy who spent his career behind the plate out to run around in left field. Yeah, that's that's the tough part, right? Like you sit here and as a fan, you're like, wow, that's cool. Russell Martin can do all these different things and, man, he can play all these different positions. And then you step back and you look at it more, uh, you know, analytically, I guess. You would say, holy smokes, there's not a lot of options that the Blue Jays have that they're having to use Russell Martin, which is a scary thing for me. I, I mean, that's something for me – Not not to take anything away from him because he's a guy who gets on base. He's a guy that can hit the ball out of the park. He does a lot of good things offensively, which is why you give him the opportunity. But it also says, man, there's a 40-man roster. There's a minor league system. There's got to be somebody as well that can maybe you can give a chance to because here's what I'm saying. Here's the other part to that is I'm a guy in AAA. I'm on the cusp of making it to the big leagues, and I play left field. And I see them putting Russell Martin in left field. Now, do you understand what that does to me mentally? It it kind of goes, dang. It, it, am I that bad? Am I not that good enough? Am I am I not ready for the big leagues? These guys not believe in me. It puts it puts a lot of questions in in people's heads, or even the guys on the bench. You know, Dwight Smith Jr. Like any who any of these guys that are that are getting played over by a catcher, you're going. Dang, am, am I good enough? And that's a that's a whole nother part of this conversation. Yeah, Dwight Smith Jr. is an interesting example because he's a guy who spent quite a bit of time at AAA. He's got his taste of the big leagues. He's actually played pretty well. I know they might want to shelter him against some lefties, but you know, is he a huge part of their future? Maybe not. That remains to be seen. Like that, we still need to see a little bit more of him. But yeah, you'd think he's a guy that they would want to trot out even against a tough lefty as opposed to Russell Martin, who, you know, he does do those things you mentioned with the bat. He does get on base. He can have for power. But this year has not been a good year from offensively. And, yeah, he can come around any day. But it's not like, man, Russell Martin's hot. we got to keep that bat in the lineup. Like, that's not where we're at right now. Well, and that's and that's the thing for me as far as development, right? That's why it's even fun to ask uh, GMs this question. How is a guy supposed to develop if he never faces the same arm? Right, if I'm if I'm a player and I only face lefties because I'm a right-handed hitter, and then I never get a start versus a righty, but late in the game, I'm facing a bullpen guy that's a right-handed pitcher. Of course, my numbers are going to be bad. I never face righties, and then now I'm facing guys in the bullpen that are paid to come out and get guys out for one inning. And so that's the skewed numbers for me. Is is how can you give a guy a chance? on the business side or, or the development side. Now, for me as a player, it's also a mental thing, right? If if somebody tells me, hey, we're going, I don't care who it is. If it's the best righty in the league, you're starting. You're going to go out there and get your at-bats. That gives me a self of confidence, a, a, a big thing of confidence. It gives me uh, an opportunity to not be scared if I don't get three hits, if I don't get two hits, if I don't get a hit, if I don't play well that I'm going to be gone the next day or, or possibly back in AAA or not in the lineup. So the mental part for me is the biggest part of these players. And I don't think that sometimes that's taken into consideration because it's such a 
numbers game. It's such an analytical game now, but talk about Solarte. You know, we talk about how he's been able to be a great player. It's because he knows every day he's going to be penciled in the lineup. And I bet you if you ask him, hey, what's a big difference? A lot of it is the confidence knowing every single day you know what you're coming to the field to do as opposed to a guy like Dwight Smith. all of a sudden he's facing a guy, well, then he sits for two days, and then he goes out there and has a good game, and then he plays again, and if he has a bad game, he's on the bench the next day. And so psychologically, that's a huge part of a player's development, and I think that's where we miss the boat a lot. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned that psychological part of the game because I think that there's this this is my theory. I don't have any proof for this, but my theory is that this is about Russell Martin a little bit and what 2019 looks like. I think they're they're maybe preparing Martin for the idea that maybe in 2019 you're not the everyday catcher. Maybe Jansen has developed and he's ready to go. Maybe Maley continues his breakout. Maybe he is kind of a backup catcher, but he plays quite a bit because he plays some other positions too type deal. And at his age, you know, maybe they don't want him doing that anymore. Defensively, he's not where he used to be in terms of pop time and throwing. So... I could see them exploring this kind of stuff because it might create a roadmap for yeah, what next year yeah, looks like. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. All right, I'm gonna I'll make you GM right now. Are you if you're having the platoon Russ Martin around the field? Is your roster that good? Because in the sense of if you're th- if you're throwing them out and left, if you're throwing them in shortstop, I mean. Shouldn't you in the American League East have an everyday shortstop? Shouldn't you in the American League have a guy in left field that can hit homers like the Red Sox do? Like that's that's for me, right? That's the question is, yeah, you're testing him to see what he can do for 19, whatever. But then does that – how do you feel if you're a GM and that's what you're having to run out there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that that is – in my head, I see 2019 potentially as kind of a transition year for the Blue Jays, especially if Josh Johnson leaves and other guys leave like Hap or whatnot. So, yeah, I don't think you want to play Russell Martin in that type of role if your team is really, really good. And you can't. Like, you were talking about athleticism before, and I kind of dug up some of these stat cast numbers. They have sprint speed now. So, Russell Martin's sprint speed, 25.8 feet per second take that for what it's worth. But that's a fine number for a catcher, but among left fielders, that's the fourth worst in the league. Among shortstops, that'd be second worst. So yeah, at these positions, he's not, he doesn't have the wheels to play those positions, which isn't really a surprise. Yeah, well, but here's the thing too. You have to take that number with a grain of salt. And here's to be the the devil's advocate. You have a guy that's catching a majority of the games. He's not going to, he's going to run hard, when he needs to run hard, but you're also you need to save your legs, especially as a catcher. And so I don't know how those equations are made. If they go of of every, every the average of of all his his running or whatever, but again, this is a guy who's going to have to be able to. He, he's he is going to turn it on when he needs to turn it on, and you have to conserve a lot as a catcher, especially the older you get. Now I do want to say I do think he's still one of the best defenders in the league he's he's very good behind the plate and I know uh, he can guys don't run on him a ton because he can throw and he's one of the he's a guy who you can't ever count out because think about his resume and what he's been able to do in taking teams to the playoffs I mean he did it with the Pittsburgh Pirates he did it with the New York Yankees he was there with the Dodgers like this guy whatever he does behind the dish for whatever reason he adds a lot of value uh calling game and and really managing a staff so uh, 
I don't the numbers are something for me, but you you can't game calling and what he represents and the knowledge that he has of the hitters around the league and all these different things. I think that's a lot more valuable than than the analytical stuff. I think that there's no doubt that in terms of value, we can't precisely measure. Russell Martin has to be one of the one of the better players in the league for that. Every, anyone who works with him will tell you that. And does that mean that you know at this stage of his career he's worth the salary? Does that mean that that guarantees him a job? I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but you're right. There's a lot more to Russell Martin than what you're going to see on a stat sheet and where we go in 2019 is going to be interesting because really they gave him that contract in part because they wanted to have that value on the team because they felt that team was going to the playoffs and they felt like he could be a big part of that experience. All right. So as we said, we are recording this podcast as Russell Martin is making his first start in left field. We don't know if it went well or if it went poorly. Let's assume that it went okay and he caught the balls in his vicinity and now we're going to hear from Alex Anthopoulos, the general manager of the Atlanta Braves, very well known, very well liked around these parts, as uh, as we made clear before. So Alex, one of the biggest, arguably the biggest story around the Toronto Blue Jays right now, which it may be a little bit sad for where the team is, is sort of the rise of Vladdy Guerrero Jr. And that story about you going out and scouting him and signing him has sort of surfaced in recent weeks as, uh, you know, as... He's become more prominent and been hitting these huge home runs and whatnot. As you watch and follow his career, has he exceeded even your expectations? Like, what's your level of interest in him? And have you, how impressed have you been with what you're seeing with this kind of kid hitting at this level in AA? Yeah, I think anytime you're involved in, you know, high draft picks or big international signs, and especially with him, we spent a lot of time on him, a lot of money in terms of travel, resources, obviously just signing bonus alone. Um, yeah, you're always going to follow. So, um, you know, it's, uh, and I could say that about not just him, but a lot of players that I may have had a hand in being involved and bringing them into the the organization. So I haven't seen him. I've seen some video clips, obviously I've looked at the, at the stat pages and things like that. And, um, the performance from afar, obviously looks like it's been outstanding. And, um, you know, it was really nice to see him hit the walk-off home run at Olympic stadium. I mean, that's something that, even that wasn't the reason we signed him. Something I always thought how how cool it would be one day for you know, knowing that we were playing our games at Olympic Stadium at the end of spring training and his dad's Hall of Fame eligibility on the horizon. How awesome it would have been to have him play there and uh, to have his dad there as well at, at the stadium. And even beyond that too, I was excited about the fact of I was slightly hopeful, optimistic. I know he was young, but he was going to get a chance to. Uh, be part of the world baseball classic team. I remember uh, Brett Laurie got to be on that team really young and knowing that he probably wouldn't, you know, be an option to be on a Dominican team just because of his age and the depth of the players there. The fact that he does qualify as Canadian, I was hopeful that he might uh, get on that team. So still going to follow um, in terms of su- surprised and expectations. I don't know that we ever can expect a 19 year old to put up the numbers he's been able to put up so far. Um, and I've read things about his exit velos and things like that, but obviously he's doing a great job. He's not there yet, and there's still a long way to go, but sounds like the early returns have been very good. So, Alex, we talked to Jose when he signed with you guys earlier about why he chose Atlanta, and one thing they mentioned was about you and him having this personal relationship where he could really trust what you said to be the truth, and he knows that maybe someone else might be selling him a bill of goods. So how would you characterize that personal relationship? And do you think it made it easier or harder 
in the end to make the tough choice to release him? Uh, I don't know that it's ever easy, hard. I don't even know that it's, it's um, there's obviously a personal connection because I've known him a long time. I, I care about him. He's done a lot for me in my career. He's done a lot for baseball in Canada, the Blue Jays, all of the above. So I'm never going to forget that. At the same time, he's got to worry about himself and his career and what's best for him. My my number one responsibility is to the Braves and to the 24 other guys in that clubhouse at, at the time, to the coaches and so on. So when he signed, we talked about all kinds of different scenarios. We had talked about things work out. There's not a lot to talk about. What if things don't go the way that we both hoped for? And with where the team was, standings, the way we were playing. You know, the one thing we agreed was if anything ever changed, there would be open communication on both sides, whether it was on his side or on mine. So once we, we meet every six weeks or so with the big league staff to go through the team, and once we had our meeting, uh, the staff collectively felt like Camargo should be the guy to play every day. Right now he was having really good at-bats, quality of contact was good, and obviously things had changed because Jose had come with the thought of, being able to be an, an everyday player. And the first thing I did was have a conversation with him, and I just kind of talked through it with him. And my number one priority was once we decided that the best thing for the Atlanta Braves was for Camargo to be the everyday guy at third base, my focus then shifted to, okay, what's the best thing for Jose in his career? And I basically gave him options. I talked to him about we can DFA him, look for a trade, but that might play out over a seven-day period. We can give him his release right away. He could have just been a bench player uh, that would have had very minimal playing time as a right-handed bat because Camargo was a switch-hit bat. Marquecas was an everyday player, and Ciarte was an everyday player. Acuna was an everyday player. So there weren't going to be at-bats for him. So from a selfish standpoint, it could have been, look, stay on the bench, wait for your opportunity. I said, if I'm putting myself in your shoes for your career, the best thing for you is to get your release right now and get caught up with another team and get your playing time right, right away rather than have to drag this out for a seven-day period. So I think that's where the trust comes in, uh, just being can- being candid with them and trying to, you know, certainly satisfy uh, my responsibilities with Atlanta. But once those are satisfied, then turn my focus to what was the best thing for him. And like I told them, the best thing for him was to continue to get at bats and play. And if it wasn't going to be with us, the best thing was to get his release right away and to get with the team fast, and he did. So I'm glad for him, and I'm still pulling for him. Alex, you've had success, and now everybody knows that you're one of the best executives in the game. And so my question is, you, you win in Toronto, you go to the Dodgers, obviously you guys have a great team over there, now you come to Atlanta, so obviously you have a way of doing things. Now you become uh, the GM and the executive vice president. Uh, now you go, okay, this is this is my show. How – because, you know, I don't know if Snicker – I've – you, he's the manager and, and the staff that's already there. How do you come in and go, okay, now here's the here's the organization as a whole. Now this guy's gone. We're going to add this guy. How does that – is it tough for you to do it right out of the gate? Do you have to wait and see how play, things play out, or do you bring your guys in at once? How does that work for you? Yeah, I think it's – what I try to do is put myself in the position of everyone else in this organization and think if I was – I've never been part of – organization where there's a change at the GM level and I can only imagine how um, daunting that might be how unsettling it might be just the uncertainty at all levels of the organization so there's certain parts of that I just can't there's nothing I can do to solve it on other you know time will certainly settle all those things my focus was more on yeah sure the team was 
one lost 90 games last year and they've been in a rebuild and people want wins right away, but there's a lot of good things that have gone on here. And I, whether it was John Sherholtz, Frank Wren, John Hart, a lot of the former GMs have done unbelievable work here and put in a ton of talent in the amateur scouting department, player development. So the wins didn't show themselves at the big league level, but there's still a lot of talent at the big league level. This, that was my thought when I came in. So rather than people having to adjust to me and my style and doing things my way or things like that, I didn't look at it that way. It was my responsibility to adjust to them and to take what the strengths of the organization were and take time to find out exactly what they are, even though I had opinions and impressions before I came in, and to give everybody an opportunity and to try to get better and to learn. I mean, part of going to L.A., I thought I got a lot better being exposed to those guys for a two-year period. And I know just being here right now, being exposed, exposed to a new way of doing things in certain areas, I'm going to improve as well. So I think stability and continuity are really important. Um, I think turnover, having a GM come in and just getting rid of everybody, changing over every department, um, I just don't think that's necessarily the right way to go about it, especially if there's been a lot of good things that have gone on. So I looked at it, it was more of a glass half full. And the only places that we made changes or added were areas that they didn't have. So um, in terms of heads of departments and things like that, we kept everything status quo. I wanted to at least go through a season, be able to spend time, build relationships, evaluate on my own with the goal of trying to maintain as much stability and continuity as we can. And if we feel we need to make some adjustments, tweaks, add, then we'll do that. But we're going to do everything we can to have as much stability as we can because they have done a lot of good things here. There has been a lot of success in, in the past. They went on a rebuild. Everyone knows there's going to be losses that come with that. And um, I don't want to be too short-sighted and take away from a lot of the good things that have gone on here. So I think JP did a good job on touching on sort of your reputation, your resume uh, as an executive. And before we let you go, we definitely have to do a little bit of uh, nostal- Blue Jays transaction nostalgia, I guess, because during your time at the Blue Jays, you were really well known for swinging that big deal, whether it was Marlins or Tulo, Price, Donaldson, even ones like Ex- Escobar, Erasmus as well. Is there a trade you made during that time that you look back on most fondly, whether it's because it worked out so well or maybe there was some last hiccup and it almost didn't happen or you had to do something crazy to make it come together of all the deals you made in Toronto is there one that I guess you spend most time thinking about now you know it's interesting I don't um I really don't look back as much on um any type of whether you want to qualify to successes or things that worked out I agonize over things that didn't work out as planned or things we could have done better and I think that's where you learn from them so I know I just if you did something well unless it was blind luck your process in that decision was probably good. So no need to make a change there and adjustment there. When things didn't work out, which there's a slew of them, I think you work in baseball long enough, you're going to have a ton of things you'd like to change. Um, you look back and say, what did we miss? What could we have changed? Was our process this, that? Um, and I'm not a believer in, hey, it happens, it's baseball, it's bad luck. I'm pretty relentless in finding out I want a why. I want to, I want to be able to point to something. So at least you feel like you have a chance to not make the same mistake twice. Um, I, I think like anything, too, your career evolves. I think I've evolved. I think I'm much different as a GM, as, in, as a, uh, someone that works in the game right now so many years in, um, just because you learn from being around different people, different experiences. So there really isn't one trade that I look back and say, well, I'm really proud of this one or one that really jumps out. Um, you know, I, I more tend to 
to look back on maybe some missed opportunities that didn't show up in trades, but hey, we could have had so-and-so and should have done this, should have done that. I think the one thing I've kind of talked about was I wish we would have got Ben Zobrist at the trade deadline. You know, we had an opportunity to get him. Um, I think I mentioned this on another podcast. I think Telez was kind of that piece, that other the, the add-on piece that we needed to put in the deal with Edwin Encarnacion a year away from free agency and Jose Batista a year away from free agency, knowing that we needed some guys that were going to be young and made the minimum. And he was a guy that we thought was on base skills and power we wanted to hang on to. And I think back and say, wow, if we would have gotten him, how does that change the, the fortunes of the Royals? How does it change for us? Um, but you, you can do that and drive, drive yourself nuts. But those are the type of things that I spend the most time on. All right, Alex, last one. And this is a true or false question. We were in Seattle one year, and the soft serve ice cream had an out-of-order sign on it. True or false, did you make that happen? Because we all figured out that it worked, but I want to know if you had them put the out-of-order sign on it. Uh, you know what? I had no idea that it didn't even work. You know, speaking of that with nutrition and diets and things like that, I think as an industry we've definitely gotten a lot better. Um, but I also think even for myself in terms of, you know, clubhouse nutrition and so on, I do think maybe we as an industry are taking it too far and it needs to be a little bit of balance because I know players can present it at times. So I think we've kind of got a nice blend in Atlanta. Um, sometimes you worry over time to not sweat the small stuff and, you know, and really spend time on the more important stuff. So clubhouse food and sodas and ice cream and all that kind of stuff that's in there. I'm not saying that I, I'm a I, I'm a proponent of having a clubhouse stuff with all that stuff, but um, I do think maybe it doesn't have to be as uh, as extreme as it is. And you know, players are grown men; they can make their decisions. I think you have to have a little bit of balance. <laughs> well, we all we all thought we were all like, man, this is a little odd that we have a out of order sign, and so you know how it is. We're all GMs. Oh, uh, we just so would have had it removed. I mean, the one thing we did do <laughs> that we didn't tell tell guys. We did have the traveling secretary take out the mini bar out of some guys' rooms because we just knew that, and some guys wouldn't even realize it, but we just knew that they would just crush. I'm not talking from an alcohol standpoint. Just all that candy in there would just get destroyed <laughs> just because it was there. So sometimes we just did it. We would just tell the travel guy, hey, take it out of so-and-so's room. And the player didn't even know it was going on, and we probably did the player a favor. But that happened very rarely, but it did happen a few, a few times. <laughs> Well, listen, I appreciate it. I've texted you this privately. You're one of the people that I very much am thankful for on this earth because you gave me an opportunity. So not to get sappy. Thank you very much. And uh, it's really, really good to see you having success. And thank you for coming on. No problem, guys. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you, Alex. Okay. Oh, and uh, yeah, well, uh, let the record show that I just hung up on Alex Anthopoulos. Uh, that's a shame. Uh, I guess I'm not getting a job in the Braves organization which is uh especially unfortunate because apparently they have a really balanced attitude towards ice cream and uh treats that i think mesh well with my own nutritional opinions yeah i still the jury's still out i still believe that that was him but <laughs> he uh he he obviously has has come a long way and he's uh he, he sounds like he's obviously at the spot that he's at and had the success that he's had because of where he's he's grown so pretty pretty special to be able to have him on yeah definitely uh a guy who's come a long way like you said and now it looks like he's got an organization in a fantastic 
position. It is a shame that we, you know, we couldn't get to the bottom of that ice cream issue. It's funny because I thought when you first asked that question that he was ducking the question and going all GM speak about like, well, now we're talking about nutrition, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be a boring answer. And then, you know, he brought it back. He brought it back and uh, gave the people something to chew on in terms of balance. You know, what's good is I'm glad I always had all my, my mini bar fill or full, excuse me. I had it always full. So at least I know I wasn't the one of the guys that he was worried about with the candy and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, you you were one of the trusted ones. And also when he says that it wasn't about the alcohol, come on. Like it was definitely about the alcohol. Yeah, no doubt. Like no one, no one is worried about someone crushing that candy. Like you can walk one block anywhere in the United States or Canada and buy whatever candy you want. Like if someone wants candy, they're going to get candy. A hundred percent, dude. I, I mean, listen, it, he's he. It was a great, it was a great answer, though. I I enjoyed it. No, he's uh, he's good insight, and uh, you know, he's someone. I think we mentioned at the outset. A lot of Toronto fans are a little bit nostalgic for, which is not to speak ill of the Shapiro Atkins administration, but it is. You know, it felt like a more of a wheeling and dealing, run and gun kind of time in that period when Anthopoulos was GM, and I think that. Sometimes that's why, sometimes it's not, but it's definitely more fun. Yeah, no, he, he uh, as a fan, I'm sure it, it's not sexy sometimes to whatever GM or whoever's in charge because of the person that had prior success. So I think that's always kind of tough uh, for the person in place, but he did, man. He made some, some big deals and, and that was one thing is, is he was known around the league, man. This guy was going to ask you for everything that you had. He was going to, he was going to throw out there some crazy asks, but you know, fortunately he was able to, to do some uh, pretty good things. Yeah. Clearly it worked out for him. All right, this is one of our uh, popular segments that you guys may or may not know by now. It's memory lane. This is one I've been looking forward to, and I finally found the best excuse uh, to get to it because tonight we've got the Stanley Cup Finals starting in Las Vegas. And JP, you spent about two seasons playing there with the with the AAA team. And I'm still alive. And I'm still alive. And he's still alive. And you know what? You know, AAA isn't the same levels the NHL in terms of fan excitement and stuff but I did want to ask you what you know what makes that place such a special place to play on the field in terms of was there more fan engagement than you'd see in AAA like did they bring that kind of spirit but uh, you know arguably more importantly uh, off the field with a bunch of minor leaguers in Las Vegas to the extent that you can tell us what goes on what goes on shoot I can I can tell you the extent because I don't play anymore. I'm not worried about if I get signed or not. But uh, first off, it's nothing like the the NHL has experienced, right? I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's not many fans that come to the game in Vegas, and I don't think that there's a lot of people that are worried about minor league baseball in Las Vegas. So that's one thing. We didn't draw well at all. We, we kind of maybe drew – good on thirsty thursdays which everybody knew that you get a free you know a lot of pops for a little bit of an amount of money and there was always a ton of fights on thirsty thursday dude it was like i I swear it was like the hood of vegas would come to the 51 games just to get some free some some beer for cheap but um it was a tough place to play man i'm gonna be honest with you other than than hitting you know the ball kind of goes well there 
the field is so hot the, the the dirt is terrible the the field dries up really really bad um so by the third or fourth inning you're trying to dig into the box and because of how dry it is the hole's already a foot deep um it, it's it's 110 degrees when you're trying to take batting practice you know it gets really really hot so when you get to the field man it's it's brutal to go out there and do your batting practice and all your different uh, pregame stuff because it's literally like 115, 110, and so that makes it tough. So those are the tough parts. 110 degrees is uh, 43.3 degrees Celsius uh, for all of our primarily Canadian listenership. Yeah, thank you for the for that. Uh, but that's that's – it's a tough place to play, man. And it really, really, it's, it's so tough here. This is the truth. It's so tough that after my first year, I told the Blue Jays, send me, I'd rather you send me to double A and let me play in double A and then call me up from double A than to have me back in triple A. Cause I hated it. I hated playing there. It was not an easy place to play, but I also asked for them to send me to double A because I said, if you guys don't get me out of there, I'm going to die. Because if they're one thing I was, is somebody who went out very, very, very hard. And so I I tried to beat the system. And so I figured, all right, listen, I was a high pick, so I was able to afford this stuff. But I was like, man, if I play at the if I play at the casinos, they're gonna comp me rooms because I'm playing at a good at a good amount of money. So I won't have to pay for stuff. I can just kind of come in, pay for, you know, play for a week while we have a homestand. I'll I'll gamble at night and then you know, I'll have my room comped and sometimes I would make money on a trip on a homestand or sometimes I would lose money on a homestand. So another thing is you play in Vegas, you start to meet a lot of people. So I met a lot of people in the party scene and all this stuff. So man, I used to go out to different places and they would comp me bottles. And we had some guys on our team that, that were making a lot of money and, and had made a lot of money in their career. So the one thing is, was going out in Vegas was an absolute you know what show? I mean, it was it was a we have the fun. e. You can use it. Okay, it was a shit show, and and we we got after it hard. Um, no drugs or anything like that, but just drinking. And obviously, there was a lot of ladies that would come in to Vegas, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And so, it was also we always knew it was funny because we always knew guys coming in, teams coming in for those four days. We're like, listen, dude, we're only coming in for four days. We don't play here. We we have all the other places. So they would come in and blow it out. And I would be catching and guys would be coming up to the plate like, dude, I don't know how you do it. Like I, I, I literally saw the sun come up this morning. I'm still drunk. Like it's a tough place to play. And again, baseball is a little different. Hockey, you play one game and you have a couple of days off and then another game baseball you're playing every single day so you really have no choice but to try to go out you blow it out pretty much and you have a game so you kind of it's it's one of those things I'm just glad that I was able to get out of there and then when I got to the big leagues it was kind of funny when I got to the big leagues uh they said hey whatever you were doing in triple a do in the big leagues and I was like (laughs) not a good idea so I was like I was like all right so I got to Toronto and I went out because I was like, dude, I used to go out and then play. And I'd go out at night, party, and then play. And I was doing really, really well. So I was like, well, I can keep it going. I'm young. I never really got hung over. So uh, early, in, early when I got to Toronto, 
That's what I used to do. I used to get after it off the field. Well, one thing that I thought you mentioned you were a higher draft pick and some guys at AAA have played in the major leagues and then they come back. But what about guys who are in the minor leagues who making the, you know, making no money and eating the peanut butter sandwiches and like how are those guys getting by in Vegas? It feels like it's sad, you know, they can't take advantage. Yeah, no, it was tough, but also, you know, the good thing is is that the living was cheap in Vegas. It wasn't it wasn't too crazy to be able to rent in Vegas. So that was a good thing for them. Um and a lot of guys we had a, a owner in baseball who owned a hotel or the team that the guy who owned our team owned a hotel. And so he would charge uh, a pretty minimal amount for guys to stay at his hotel. And so that helped out a lot of the, the, those guys as well. But, you know, most of the time he said, there's guys and there's guys like we had a Jeremy Accardo who was making a million dollars in triple a, and that's a blast from the past. He had 30 saves oh, yeah. for the blue Jays. Jeremy year, Accardo but, fans for sure. Still out there. But that's the thing. You have guys like that that are making a lot of money or, you know, minor league free agents that are making over a hundred thousand dollars. So those guys usually help the other players that are not really making that much money. Cause it's dude, there's guys that are obviously, like you said, I was making in Vegas, I was making 2150 a month. And so now you try to, you know, thankfully again, I was a high pick, so I had money in the bank, but you you do that for a kid who signed for 6,000 bucks or a thousand bucks or a plane ticket I mean, that's what you're living on in Vegas. It's not easy. And like you said, you're tra- you're trying to scratch, but hopefully the people who are the veterans in the clubhouse, you know, pay it forward and help guys out. It's funny because as someone who very much does get hungover, um, the idea of going out and then standing on a baseball diamond in 43 degree heat, like that sun is the worst thing for you when you're feeling that way. And like it just beating dude, down, like that dude. sounds like a nightmare to me. True story, I lived in I lived in the Hard Rock for a little bit, uh, and I'm sure you've heard of rehab, the pool party. Yeah. Okay. So, I am living there, so I was like, you know what? Let's go. I have a night game. I'll go and I'm not gonna drink, but I'll go and hang by the pool. So I go and hang by the pool. Well, because I knew people, I got a cabana. Well, dude, I shit you not, three cabanas down from me drinking were the umpires of that series <laughs> day drinking so wow. it was i was like you pieces of shit like i'm looking <laughs> at you drink and you're gonna go out there and you're gonna suck tonight and i'm gonna wear you out but but then i kind of was like you know what these guys know that they can't mess with me because i have a lot of evidence over them right <laughs> now so that was but it was i mean that's that's vegas right like even the umpires are getting after it that's ridiculous. Did you find there were guys on your team who would be like much worse at home because they were getting after all the time? And they'd be good on the road. Like, did those splits open up? I know it's a good place to hit, so that might have confused things a bit. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Not that I realized, right? Like, I wasn't, I wasn't really into <laughs> into my teammate stats on home or away. Um, I guess but I that's did, fair. I did, I did walk in one time. I never forget. I walked into a uh, late night. I think it's called Dre's or something like that. It's a late late night club, and you know, I for whatever reason I could really ha- handle myself well. But I walked into this place, and I won't name the guy. But one of my teammates was there, like asleep at a table, and I was like, "Uh, okay, dude, we're gonna have to." I, I woke him up and was able to tr- get him home because I was like, "This is not good. Like, this guy is just sitting here, passed out at a table." And uh, so, but here's one thing too: is what I liked about Vegas is 
there's food at any time. So I think that also helped with hangovers is, you know, you're able to go and get food at four or five in the morning, eat and sleep and wake, you wake up at noon and you're ready to go. I mean, I feel like we can do Vegas all day. Honestly, you know, you floated the idea of doing a podcast special episode on minor league stories, get some of your old teammates. I think we might have to do that. But today we're going to move on. Um, but yeah, that's definitely an idea to revisit. So on Outside the Nest Day, we're looking outside Blue Jays stories. In a sense, this is always a story. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit of Mike Trout today because on Tuesday, and again, this is a bit arbitrary, it's a statistical thing, but he reached the threshold of being considered the average Hall of Famer by Jay Jaff. He's a Sports Illustrated guy. He's got this Jaws system. It combines all the stats and adjusts for era. Like it's, I can't say that I know the special sauce on this, but the fact that a guy this early in his career is being considered sort of a straight-up middle-of-the-road Hall of Famer, and he's still got you know 10 years plus to go, is insane. And then on Saturday, he had a 5-for-5 five five game with 11 total bases. That was a career. I think that's in your debut. Didn't you have 11 total bases? That's your career high as well. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the total bases. Wasn't I know, it two, two dingers, a double and a single? No, that's correct. All right. So, so 11 that's 11. Total bases. That's 11 right, total bases. You. There you go. So you and Mike Trout on the same level there. So, I mean, I'll take an excuse to talk about Mike Trout because it's ridiculous. I want to know from your perspective in terms of guys you played alongside in terms of guys you watch on tv like where does trout rank for you in terms of how special this guy is i mean right up there with the top i mean I, I got to play against him quite a bit and it was so special the one thing that that people don't realize is how big mike trout is like he's massive he's i really i realized that and i played against him for a while before i even realized it was when we were in texas i saw him standing next to prince fielder and I'm going, holy smokes, dude, this guy's back is as big as Prince Fielder's. Like, he is, for what he does speed-wise and the size of that guy, like, it is – I wasn't around during Bo Jackson, right? Like, I, you know, I, I know of him, but he's got to be in the same conversation as far as a freak of an athlete as Bo Jackson. Maybe not as fast, but, like, size, this dude is enormous. So He looks like a linebacker. Like, it's, it's it, crazy. A hundred – and he runs and he runs like a freaking DB or a safety, right? Yeah. Like so that's the one thing. But again, he is so special. I remember he makes adjustments. One, let me tell you that, because for a while, I don't know if you remember, they were throwing fastballs up in the zone. They still try to do it to him. And they were they have they have success because his his he's a very good low ball hitter. I think he's one of the best, if not the best, low ball hitter in the league. Um but he's able to go out there and make adjustments and have a little bit of a struggle and then all of a sudden come back and get better and he continues to get better and better and better and the guy just he plays good defense he's a phenomenal dude that's another thing that makes him super special is not only is he a great player he's he's like I'm sure he's he's confident and cocky in his own way but he's so easy to talk to, so humble. You talk to him, you really don't ever get the feeling of like, oh my gosh, the star Mike Trout, which I think branding-wise and the reason why he's maybe not as known on the everyday on the street as he could be is because I think that he's okay with just kind of running running under the radar and being just normal uh, Joe. I mean, he's dated his girlfriend and now wife forever. I mean, he's just a good, good kid, but what he can do on the field is special, and it's crazy that you know you're, the guy's probably 
in his mid twenties. I don't know exact age, but he's already considered a, a a Hall of Famer. Which you know we I could be telling my kids I played against the best player of all time one day, and it's and it's possible with Mike Trout. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah, Mike Trout is actually uh, he's born the same year as I was. So I remember I interviewed Trout last year for a little bit and you know trout you know he kind of just gives kind of cheerful pretty plain answers like it wasn't the most amazing interview i've ever done by any means he's a nice guy for sure but i remember just standing there across from him like however many feet across him just thinking like i'm talking to the best baseball player for sure in the world like, like someone who's the best in the world at what they do and also maybe potentially historically going forward like you said, could be best of all time or right up there. And like normally when I'm talking to ballplayers, that's a part of my job. And that's not, it doesn't, I don't get starstruck. But when I was across from Mike Trout, it was just this different feeling. Man I was crush? Like, this guy, no, I mean, not like Acuna, which he hurt himself badly on the weekend, which uh, I'm really sad about. No, it wasn't like that. But it was just like, there was a little bit of a sense of awe of being around this guy, partly because of, like you said, his physicality, like he's a monster. But dude, he's, uh, he's, he's insane. It, and also, I think that like when I used to watch, for example, Barry Bonds, like he controlled the strike zone and as a hitter, he was just unmatched. But Trout, what's interesting is he he's just good at every part of like there's just nothing this guy's not good at. And in some ways, that's harder to notice. Like I think sometimes the average fan thinks like, oh, yeah, Mike Trout's great, but they don't realize just like how great he is because he has no weaknesses. Yeah, well, and here's another one. It's funny. I I used to love calling a game against him because I would be like, okay, don't do this because if if the pitcher shakes of this, we're in trouble. So it's a I, I wanna say we had a one run lead and it was against or it was Coco Codero on the mound. And he was our closer at the time. And he comes up to to bat and I want I don't know if it was a tie game or a one run lead if there was a guy on or nobody on, but if he would have hit a home run, it was to put him up. And so I go out to the mound when he comes up, and Cordero loved to throw a lot of sliders. Big-time slider guy. Well, Mike Trout kills breaking balls. Like, he is – he I mean, he hit a home run off Sonny Gray recently on a breaking ball that was absolutely crushed. Like, this guy just is – on the scouting report, it says, if you throw a breaking ball, it's got to be in the dirt because he's going to hit it out of the park. So, of course, I walk my happy butt out there. Hey, Coco. I know you like to throw a lot of sliders. We need to throw more fastballs to this guy. And if you throw a slider, it's got to be in the dirt. But I don't really want to throw many sliders. He's he's really good. If we throw him a slider, he's going to hurt us. And he's like, yeah, you think so? I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no. You think? I, I'm like, no, I, I know. And so he's like, okay. All right, Poppy. And I so I go back and I'm like, okay, I, that was a good conversation. So I put down fastball, shake. I put down fastball, shake. I put down slider and he gives me the, the nod. I'm like, dude, what the hell? <laughs> we just and so what do you think happens? Throws him a slider and he hits it off the freaking facade of the second deck in center field. And I'm like, dude, I literally had just this conversation. <laughs> like, you can't throw this guy a breaking ball, but that's how good he is, right? Like, you know, there's certain guys that you know, like, hey man, you can't do this. And of course, I mean, listen, people are still gonna be competitive and go what do you mean i can't do this heck yeah i can still get out whoever with my pitch well Good it was luck. hit off the second yeah it was hit off the second deck and we lost that game 
All right, we wrap up this podcast the same way each week, and uh, that's with a little JP Career Trivia. This week, you're not going to like it. It's uh, it's pretty much as negative as, as she comes, but last week we had your most triumphant at bat ever, longest, whatever. So there's going to be no uh, kid gloves this week. So this week we are talking about golden sombreros, which for those of you who do not know is when you strike out four times in a single game. So there's going to be a couple questions. First of all, there's a bonus question. The bonus question is, do you know how many golden sombreros you have in your uh, sitting in your closet from your big league career? Hell no. Well, the answer to that question is five, which, you know, is not not so bad. I mean, it could definitely guys with more than that out there. But anyway, so there's two what I want to call pure golden sombreros, which are ones where you only took four trips to the plate and struck out every time. So that's only happened twice in your career. So the an- the question is, do you can you tell me the pitcher on the mound for those two ones? So right now you're sitting at, I think, a six out of eight on career trivia. This question is worth two points. Can you tell me the starters on those days? Well, first, before I answer that question, I'm going to tell you that the way that I was able to not ever worry about four strikeouts in a game was I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question quick. Do you know who has the most all-time four strikeout games in history of baseball? Played for the Yankees. I'll tell you that. It's going to be someone. It's going to be Babe Ruth then. No, Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson. Okay? Oh, so, yeah, I guess Babe so, Ruth played before people struck so out that much. When that's, so for me, when I heard that stat, I was like, F it. I can, I'm not, listen, if he can strike out four times in a game and, elite, and he had a pretty damn good career, then I'm not going to get too strung up on it. But now, do I know who I've had four strikeout games against? I mean, I, listen, I don't really know who it is. I'm going to just throw a shot out in the dark. There's some say, good, they're good pitchers. I'll give you that clue. I'll, I'll give you a couple clues. One, they're both good pitchers. Two, they're, this might be too much of a clue. But, that's the worst clue I've ever heard. Okay, there fine. Good so pitchers. the second clue will be better. They're both left-handed. Oh, both left-handed? Uh, well... Let me see. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna go with maybe. Dang, I don't know. CC Sabathia and let's say. Uh, okay, I'm gonna give you three and let's see. David Price, CC Sabathia, or John Lester. Okay, that, I don't know, but I really don't have. That was a, there's some serious cheating in there, but I'll give you one because David Price is one of them. David Price for the Tampa Bay Rays. This these two games actually happened within a month of each other in 2011, which is kind of interesting. So David Price was one, Cliff Lee was the other. And oh yes, Cliff, Cliff Lee, Lee when he was with I the Phillies. And fun yes. fact also about them is that the Blue Jays won both of those games. So you don't have to feel too bad I about should, that. I should have I struck out more than we would have won more games. Yeah, uh, that's – dang, that sucks. I mean, I I tried – I knew David Price pitched me pretty well. I completely forgot about Cliff Lee, and I remember that game because he kept on throwing me curveballs, and his curveball was so big that as soon as he threw it out of his hand, I was like, geez, that's <laughs> way up there. And then all of a sudden, it just landed for a strike, and I was like, uh, okay, that didn't happen as planned. Cliff Lee was a fun guy to watch because he just – he threw strikes. Like He was not walking anybody. Like He just pounded the zone, but – in a way where he had nasty stuff, not in a way where he was just like trying to force contact out there. Yeah, but we used to we used to hit him pretty good as a team because because he was always aggressive. And I remember reading a comment. I mean, somebody had to be out when he pitched against us, right? So obviously I was that guy. But um, 
I remember when he pitched against us, he was like, listen, you know, that's that's part of me and being aggressive is everybody knows that I'm going to come right after you. And so sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But I remember like Encarnacion hitting home runs off him and, and Jose and us kind of knocking him around a little bit because, you know, he was going to come in and he was going to come right after you with fastballs. And we were a good fastball hitting team. But I think more often than not, obviously, in his career, it worked to his advantage. So you, you said you had, you had no idea and then, you know, you took more guesses than was uh, allowed by the question thing. So this is something that those type of days did not stick with you. Like it wasn't something that was super memorable uh, when you had those type of days. Hell no. You want to, you don't want, do you want to be like, oh yeah, I remember that one time. You say you like to play hoops. So I remember that. <laughs> I remember that one time I went just turn the turnovers and all. no you're gonna go i remember when i when i dropped 15 points and had 10 boards like no you don't remember that i mean yes there are times there's certain people that you know like i knew that clay buckholtz dominated me i knew that but i mean for the most part you don't remember those one game things i wish that i had even less of a memory because all the great players those dudes they if they were struck out four times they would probably sit here and go i've never struck out four times in a game that's why they're good is because they're full of shit, but I'm too real with myself. Yeah, it is interesting because I feel like some of the most memorable things, I mean, we're, we're tech, we'll take a step outside sports for a second. Sometimes the things you remember the best in life are when you're really embarrassed, like those really cringy moments. But I guess that, you know, striking out against big league pitching doesn't doesn't quite qualify in the same bucket. What, 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 what do you mean like when my uncle – came to me when I was 15 and talking to a girl in the pool and said, Hey, if you, uh, don't take your medicine tonight, I won't let you sleep. in I won't let you sleep in our, in our apartment because I'm tired of you wetting the bed at night. And I'm like, dude, that is such a make. I'm like looking at the girl, like, no, that's not true. That's a made up story. But yes, I remember that still to this day. Cause it was so embarrassing. Cause the girl looked at me and I was like, no, 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 he's just making that up. He's just making that up, which was true. He was making that up, but Yes, I understand the embarrassment. Part. Basically, your uncle sounds like uh, an amazing troll. Like I, that's a that's an unre- that's a classic middle aged man move to embarrass his uh, nephew. There, like I've seen seen that. That's yeah. one of the best ones I've heard of. But that it seems like he had that down to an art. If he was able to pull that. Yeah, crush me. I was. That's why I bought, when Boston and all these people, I'm like, listen, you guys need to turn. You got to turn up the the obscenity a little bit to me i grew up with some uncles that would wear me out much more than you are right now all right i think that's a that's an interesting note for us to end today we uh you know we went from the golden sombrero to you know d- digging in i a don't wet my pants okay and a public service announcement jp and Sevia does not and has not wet the bed at least since he was 15 arguably before then but there's no evidence of that so Please tune in, uh, you know, every week with us. Subscribe, listen on whatever podcast platform is preferable to you. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, an exciting guest and talking Blue Jays.